Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes depictions of mental illness, violence against minors, domestic violence, and child death, as well as discussions of racism and genocide against Native Americans. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. George wasn't a very good pilot. He knew it. His instructor knew it. But that was why he was so useful for training air gunners. If they could aim while he was flying, they could hit anything. Still, he wanted to get better. He wanted to fight the Nazis, too. So when he could, he practiced. He flew over Slaughterhouse Canyon, tracing the curves of the rock formations, telling himself someday he'd be brave enough to dance around them like he was chasing the Red Baron himself. And he did get better, bit by bit mile by mile. Sure, he had to charm the jet fuel out of his buddy who guarded the supply shed, but he was getting better. Then one day, he saw her. She was just a tiny shape on his first pass, a spot of white and red with long blonde hair that flowed behind her like the dancing flame of a candle. She seemed to be speaking, but the roar of the engine swallowed up all other sound. He couldn't make out the words at this height, he would have to duck lower, like a real pilot. He dipped the nose of the plane and evened out again, coming around for a closer look. Maybe she needed help. As he took his second pass, he realized what the wash of red had been on the pristine white. Blood. She was covered in blood. The engine sputtered and died. George hung in the air for a small, perfect moment. Then... The woman opened her mouth and screamed. It echoed off the rocks like a gunshot in the silence. The plane began to fall. Welcome to Haunted Places, a podcast original. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places for free on Spotify. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to Slaughterhouse Canyon, Arizona, a blighted informal housing settlement with a gruesome Wild West past, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. We'll learn how this canyon gained its gruesome name after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. While the Civil War raged on the American East Coast, groups of prospectors and Californian troops waged war with the Apaches across the Arizona Territory. It had been acquired by the United States less than 20 years earlier, in 1848, with the final deal coming through in 1853. 
Some settlers made their way to Hualapai territory on the southern side of the Grand Canyon. Legend says that it was here, in this quiet and remote place, that a man settled down with his wife and their three children. The canyon was so remote that it bore no name on a map. So the man, in his love for his wife, gave it her name, Luana. But shortly after his death, it would earn the name it has carried to the present day, Slaughterhouse Canyon. Hosea hated being away from home. He missed his little girls and little Hosea Jr., all 18 months of him. But most of all, he missed his wife. Luana hadn't changed since the moment he'd married her. She'd always be that way in his mind, her white dress and golden hair flowing in the breeze from the Mississippi River, smiling in the sunlight, trusting him, swearing to follow him wherever he went, because they were a family. Neither of them had ever had a family before, and they would stop at nothing to keep theirs. Stopping at nothing, in this case, meant being apart from his family far longer than he'd like, often weeks at a time. He had to head into the hills in search of gold. A few good-sized nuggets could be enough to feed them for the next few months, while he and Luana tried to coax sustenance from the land. Sometimes it seemed impossible, but if anyone could do it, Luana could. She picked a spot by the river where the water pooled, so it was easy to bathe themselves and the children to wash clothes and to irrigate her rapidly growing garden. He'd picked her up and spun her around when the first sprouts had poked their way through the wet soil. His wife was like Mother Nature, or one of those tree women in the story she read to the children at bedtime. Hosea was impatient. He hadn't wanted to be a prospector, but the price for gold was one of the few stable things in this weary world of theirs. With the army gone, he had to ride quickly and quietly to the nearest mining town dodging Hualapai and Apache patrols on the way. He often wished he could bring a small cart with him to stock up further, but speed and silence were paramount. Now he was on his way home, his saddlebags filled with flour and corn and dried fruit and meat. He knew Luana would work her magic and make fine meal after fine meal until he would have to venture out again. He crossed the springs and the mountains until he found his own babbling brook, the one that always made him smile because he knew he was close to home. Only a few hours now. He was even early. Luana would be overjoyed. Hosea couldn't resist the urge to let out a whoop of jubilation as the brook came into view. He hoped to take solace in the soft rush of the water as his call died away. But strangely, there was only silence. He was already unnerved when another sound overtook his ears. It was a scream in the wind, a woman in anguish. Hosea stopped his horse short, squinting in the half-light. He could see no one, only the tan rocks and the deep green brush, the soft purples of the sky trying to swallow the blue mountains on the horizon. The scream carried through the canyon again. It seemed to be coming from everywhere at once. A thousand screams, circling him like carrion birds. He couldn't call back. He didn't know who was listening, who was out there. Arizona had a way of making you know that the land wasn't yours, and the Apaches were more than willing to reinforce that point. He carefully walked his horse back against the rocks, 
The poor old thing was already twitching anxiously, like she was in a thunderstorm. He didn't want her getting spooked. He hummed softly to her, rubbing her neck gently. He couldn't help anyone until she was calm. But the call was getting louder. He pricked his ears, trying to locate the true source of the echoes. It seemed to be an outcropping across the brook, just below the soon-to-be-setting sun. He had to make a choice now. Either he left this tortured woman to her pain and started for home, or he left the tenuous safety of the path. He asked himself what Luana would have him do, his brave wife, unbowed by the rough elements and the remoteness of their home. She always said they needed to make a community where they could. He had his answer. Hosea urged his horse to walk toward the brook, tutting and begging, negotiating, promising that everything would be all right. The water was easily forded, but not necessarily by a nervous horse. Hosea rubbed her neck again, singing a union song softly to show her he wasn't afraid. The screams nearly split his head open this time, his ears ringing against his skull. He squeezed his legs against his horse, forcing her to turn and go forward, toward the horrible sound. She stepped into the brook as the screams came again. The horse reared up, letting out a scream of its own. Hosea's head dipped dangerously close to the stream, his hands scrambling madly as the reins slid through his fingers. He tumbled into the water, half the flower coming down with him. He landed hard on his neck, his limbs collapsed beneath him at unnatural angles. Hosea tried to lift his head, searching for his horse as she galloped away. His head wouldn't move. Neither would his fingers or his toes. He tried to cry out, but only a small croak left his lips. The pale white of the flower coated his features like snow as the shredded bags were washed away in the river. The brook was moving faster now. He felt its force as it lapped at the back of his head, his cheekbones chilling in the cold water. He could not move, and he was going to drown. Hosea thought of his son, and he thought of his daughters. He thought of Luana, her hair golden, her dress white. He told himself they would be all right. This was Luana's canyon. It belonged to her. He always said so. The water continued to rise. He began to choke, cold liquid burning his nose as he vainly tried to breathe. He looked up at the still blue sky as the water closed over his head. The last thing he heard was the screaming. Life in the Arizona Territory was dangerous. Relations with the original and current native occupants of the land were violent, and many homesteaders relied on the protection from the U.S. Army. But when troops were pulled from the territory at the end of the Civil War, a decade of bloody chaos ensued, as the white settlers tried to push the Apache out of their homeland by force. Remote homesteads were a way to try and stay beneath the indigenous population's notice, but that meant no help when something did go wrong. And something was about to go very wrong for Luana. Up next, Luana reaches the end of her rope. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. With her husband dead, Luana and her children were left alone in what would later be known as Slaughterhouse Canyon. But she had no idea of her true peril yet. It was not unheard of for women to make their way in the American West on their own. Many were entrepreneurs, homesteaders, even outlaws. The frontier offered an opportunity for a new kind of society where the rules were up for negotiation. In the country, far from the eye of what passed for the law in these parts, there was a different law at play. The law of nature. You must eat, you must drink, you must sleep. How you manage to do so? Well, that's between you and your maker. Luana knew how to pass the time. There was always something to do. She tended the garden and read to the children. She mended the clothes. At night, when Beth, Sarah, and little Hosea Jr. were asleep, Luana would gaze out the window of their tiny home and count the stars, dreaming of the day she and her husband would gaze up at the sky together again. It scared her, this Wild West, but she knew that if she had him, she could do anything. He'd promised to never change, and he never had. She hated having him away for even a moment, so his necessary three-week trips were torture. She counted the days and even the hours, charting it all in the small almanac he'd brought her back from town. She wanted to be able to predict the very moment he would return home. She learned not to tell the children of her calculations, as them asking after their father only made her miss him all the more. And this time, her predictions were wrong. He was a day overdue. Then two, then three. She began to put the children down for naps so she could carry out a search, venturing further and further downstream, looking for any signs that he'd come through the canyon, maybe gotten lost. The worst kinds of fears grew in her mind, that he'd been hurt in a bar fight or captured by the Apaches, mistaken for some outlaw and carted back east to be tried and hanged. She told herself that none of that could have happened. Hosea had promised not to change, so he wouldn't. But days became weeks. The children started to ask after their father, no matter how gently she asked them not to. Soon she was struggling to be gentle. Her belly ached, but she gave every remaining morsel to them, her little angels, who looked so much like Hosea. They still cried. Little Beth and Sarah and Hosea Jr., they didn't understand why they were hungry, so they cried. One morning, just as the sun rose, she caught Sarah pulling their tiny sprouts out of the ground and stuffing them in her mouth. She felt a flush of anger rising on her cheeks. Their hope for a future, for a home, was crushed in her little girl's tiny fingers. She nearly hit her then. Luana had never raised her hand to anyone in her life, but she was so angry. 
She staggered backwards and told Sarah to go play with her sister, keeping her voice measured. Then she ran to the brook and scrubbed her hands until they were raw and red. Luana was changing. She had promised Hosea she wouldn't, but she was so hungry and scared. She could only walk so far. They had one horse, and Hosea had left with it. It was three days' ride to the next homestead, eight to the closest town. Her oldest daughter was four. They would never make it. The girls had near-constant nightmares, and little Hosea wailed all the time. Luana would take the bleary-eyed children out foraging with her, tying them together in a little daisy chain to make sure they didn't wander off. She couldn't lose anyone else. She used up all the shells for the shotgun, trying to hit an elusive rabbit that mocked her as it nibbled by the stream. Only as the sound of her final shot echoed off the canyon walls did she realize what she would have to do. The question was how to do it. A pillow, perhaps? No. She was not strong enough to feel her little ones squirm beneath her hands, begging for air. She had seen how long it took a fish to suffocate in open air. Thinking of the fish made her wonder if she could drown them. But the same issues arose. She considered poison, but she didn't know enough about the surrounding plant life to distill one herself. She considered walking into the valley and screaming crying for the Indians to come and murder them all. But with her luck, they would just exhaust themselves before finding anyone, collapsing in the sun to die slowly, food for the vultures circling overhead. This was how she landed on the axe. It was a heavy thing, still sharp from Hosea's excellent care, though it got little use in this landscape. Their hearth was fueled by twigs, most of which could be snapped by even little Beth's hands. Now, when Luana stared up at the night sky, she didn't count the stars. She listened to the roar of her empty stomach and weighed which would be a quicker end, a slice at the neck or through the forehead. She settled on the neck. If it was fit for kings, it was fit for her little ones. Their suffering would end, and she would be alone. She didn't know what she would do with herself then, but she needed to be a mother first. The order didn't require much thought. Sarah came first, as she was always the quickest to make a noise. Luana raised her arms and struck true. Somehow both horrified and comforted by how similar the motion was to any other form of chopping. Perhaps she really could make it quick, despite her emaciated state. Beth was next. Luana tried to remove her daughter's thumb from her mouth, worried she would get her wrist before her neck. But every time she pulled, the little girl stirred. So she chopped as is. Beth's head left her body, and her hand did too. Then came Hosea Jr., like his father in every way. For a moment, she swore she could hear her husband's cries echoing through the canyon, but she shook her head and brought the axe down. Her son opened his eyes at the last possible moment as the blade descended. He did not have time to scream. Luana sat by the brook for a long time, bloody axe still in hand. As she had expected, 
She did not know what to do with herself. She did not know how best to die. Her body felt so heavy that she might as well lay down in the brook and let the water cover her mouth and nose. Then she heard it. The song Hosea always sang to himself when he was nervous. It was carrying down the canyon. Luana scrambled to her feet. No, no, it couldn't be. It had been months, months. The first frost had come and gone. There had been no hope, no hope at all. Luana didn't know what to do. She'd promised not to change. She'd promised to keep them safe. He would have to understand. She ran for the shack, throwing the door open. Her children's remains were where she had left them, bloody but peaceful on the bed. But she could still hear Hosea. He was coming. She went to the chest at the foot of their bed, drawing out her pale white wedding dress. It fit just the same as the day they were married. She hadn't changed. She hadn't changed. She'd been protecting them. He would see. The tune grew closer, and she saw his shape come around the bend. Still tall, still beautiful, exactly the same. He drew close, stopping on the other side of the brook, just looking at her. His skin was sallow, haggard, but it was him. But he just stared, looking her up and down. She tried to explain what had happened, she stepped forward to hold him, begging him to understand. They could mourn their loss and celebrate the miracle of his return. They would be together. Nothing had to change. But then she paused. He was not moving toward her. She stood, waiting, calling out to him. But he did not cross the brook. He did not move. He did not blink. She carried the children outside, laid them on the bank to show him. But he still did not move. She screamed at him to say something, to hate her, forgive her, something. But he did not move, and he did not blink. She brandished the axe over their children's bodies, threatening to carve them up if he wouldn't speak. He didn't even acknowledge she had said anything. So she did it. She chopped them up, first in halves, then in quarters, smaller and smaller bits as her dress got more and more red. She screamed at Hosea to stop her, but he did not move and he did not blink. She cried and pleaded and begged, finally finding the nerve to step into the stream, to grasp at his sleeve. But as her fingers touched the fabric, she realized He'd never been there at all. Her vision cleared. She saw the bloody dress and the mangled remains of her children on the shore. She screamed so loud it echoed around the whole canyon. She cried until her throat was raw and her chest ached. Her knees buckled and she fell to the ground. River silt clinging to her bloody gown. Sobs shook her frame until she couldn't sob anymore. Then she lay still and let the carrion birds claim her. We have very little concrete information about the namesake of Luana's Canyon. 
The story goes that she lost touch with reality after her prospector husband failed to return from an excursion, leaving her and her children to starve. Luana decided to kill her children, donning her wedding dress and chopping them up into pieces that she then threw in the river. She screamed until she died, either killing herself or passing away from exposure, and her screams still echo around the canyon in the dead of night. If the legend of Luana's nervous breakdown is true, it happened sometime between the American acquisition of Arizona in the early 1850s and the founding of nearby Kingman, Arizona in 1882. We don't know what became of Luana's husband, and some accounts even disagree as to how she murdered her children, her method of disposing the bodies, and whether she was wearing her wedding dress or not. What many locals do seem able to agree on is that if you stand in Luana's Canyon late at night, the disembodied shrieks and cries of children join a tragic woman's unearthly wail on the wind. Coming up, the canyon lives up to its name, even in the present day. Now back to the story. In 1882, a civil engineer named Lewis Kingman passed through the Arizona Territory planning the route of the New Atlantic and Pacific Railroad. One of the stops was between Winslow, Arizona and a small depot on a wagon road known as Beale Springs. A town grew up in the area, named after Kingman. Within five years, it would become the county seat for Mojave County. It was nestled nicely between the mineral-rich Surbat Mountains and the territory of the Hualapai. The neighboring mining towns quickly went boom and bust, but the people of Kingman built their lives around the coming and going of travelers. That industry stood the test of time as wagon roads became railroads and railroads became highways. The borders of Kingman encroached closer and closer to Slaughterhouse Canyon, eventually reaching within a few miles of it in the modern day. This land, formerly a site of tragic isolation, is now on the brink of being swallowed up by the construction of a subdivision. But even if construction was approved, it would not go smoothly. Initial attempts at building have left behind blighted homes and the broken cement foundations of houses that will never be. Abandoned trailers, buses, and even boats pepper the landscape. Trash is everywhere. It might look like a modern day ghost town, until you see someone in dirty clothes climbing quietly out of a long-dead car. The transient population of Kingman and the surrounding area take shelter where they can, and Slaughterhouse Canyon is often the best option within walking distance in the hot Arizona sun and cold desert night. But best is a tricky word when you're desperate, especially when you have to decide between the cops on your back and the screams in the canyon. Eddie knew it was a bad idea. He was big enough to admit that. But he wanted a Jeep, and it was right there. The keys were in the ignition. It was running and everything. Sure, the keys were in the ignition because the owner was on the other side of the car, but like the saying goes, you win some, you lose some. Eddie was losing quite a lot lately. The cops were right on his tail. He'd never been in a car chase before, but he sort of expected it to be faster. Rush Hour in Kingman wasn't particularly crowded, but it definitely made aiming for action movie speeds difficult. 
Eddie chugged forward, his eyes darting left and right as he headed southeast. He wasn't sure where he was going, letting instinct guide him. His instincts were usually pretty good. This time, they were not. His pursuers cornered him as he fled to the eastern edge of town. He hopped out of the car and took off running. He crossed the railroad tracks with a leap and made a beeline for Slaughterhouse Canyon. Sure, he could lose them somewhere in the graveyard of consumerism within. He dove into an Airstream trailer, not bothering to check for signs of life, which was a mistake because someone was definitely already sleeping in there. He staggered away, apologized, and began moving deeper into the canyon with the sun at his back. He looked over his shoulder, hoping he could stop, but he could see the police close behind, picking their way through the cement block foundations and rusted out sheds. He stepped onward, following what might have once been a babbling brook. Every now and then, he glanced back to see the cops knocking on another door, throwing aside another set of cement blocks. He hadn't even gotten to keep the Jeep. Why were they so obsessed with finding him? As if in answer, a blast of static came over the bullhorn. They warned him that it was dangerous in the canyon at night. He needed to come in. Eddie laughed to himself. He and his friends told ghost stories for fun. He wasn't scared of some axe-wielding, spooky bride. The bullhorn squeaked again, but Eddie ignored them, continuing his impromptu hike into the canyon. At least there was shade here. He rested after about an hour, pretty sure they'd be too busy trying to take a census of the squatters to expect he'd gone backpacking without a backpack. He sat down against one of the rocks, taking in how peaceful the canyon was. Maybe this whole on-the-run thing had a silver lining. He laid his head back against the rock and closed his eyes. He woke to find a little girl staring at him, her eyes big and owlish in the dark night. Eddie blinked the sleep away. It seemed like one of the street kids had come by to see what was happening. He introduced himself, but the girl just stared. He told her she was freaking him out. She kept staring. He stood up and brushed himself off marching back toward the settlement. But as he stepped forward, another little girl blocked his path. He let out a curse. He didn't want to play games. He had little sisters. He knew how this went. He told himself to ignore the way her eyes seemed to glow in the darkness. He turned around and stomped back to his hiding spot. He wasn't going to be chased out by some creepy little girls. Eddie swore he heard a scream which didn't make sense the longer he thought about it. He closed his eyes and went back to sleep. When he next awoke, there was a man beside him. He stood perfectly still, watching Eddie with big, sad eyes. Eddie was annoyed now. He thought the whole point of hiding at a transient camp was for people to leave you alone. He yelled at the guy to leave him alone, but he just kept staring. Eddie stood up to take a swing at the guy, but as he did, the man retreated into the darkness. Well, maybe retreat was the wrong word. It was like the night swallowed him up. Eddie was starting to admit that he was a little uncomfortable, so he made his way further into the canyon, taking full cover by some brush. They would really have to look for him if they wanted to find him. He lay down again, ignoring his need to pee in favor of a rage nap. 
But then he heard the stream again and a woman's cry. Eddie sat up, profoundly annoyed. But as his eyes adjusted, he saw a woman standing in the middle of the water, water that shouldn't have been there at all. It wasn't flowing around her so much as through her, her dress unmoving as the water rushed by. At first, he thought she looked strangely dry, but upon closer examination, he realized that her dress had once been white. Now she was soaked in something wet and sticky. It clung to the lace of her dress, staining it far darker than it should have been. Eddie didn't know what to say. He just stared. Then she opened her mouth and screamed. She screamed at him to do something, say something, but he was too frightened. His jaw locked and his hands shook. He didn't need to pee anymore. Finally, after what felt like a wailing eternity, he managed to find the words. He asked her how he could help. She paused, taking her turn to stare. Apparently, no one had ever asked that before. After another long considered pause, she spoke again. He needed to go back, she ordered. This wasn't for him to see. Eddie nodded nervously and thanked her. Then he stood up slowly and walked toward the ghost town. He felt a constant urge to look back, but he knew somehow that that was the worst thing he could possibly do. He continued forward, step by step, worrying all the while that the police would be waiting for him at the entrance. But whatever awaited him in prison couldn't be as unnerving as the strange woman with her pale form and sad eyes. The woman water ran through. He stepped out of the blighted area and onto Slaughterhouse Canyon Road, heading for Mission Boulevard. He was a little bit offended not to see any cops at all. After such a stressful chase, they gave up after one night. But then, he looked down at his cell phone to check his messages. He had been in the canyon for five days. Eddie stopped in the middle of the street, trying to understand. It was then that his hunger caught up with him. He was ravenous, more hungry than he'd ever been in his entire life. So hungry that he'd do anything to sate it. Anything. He eyed a group of children coming out of a nearby store. Now, all he needed was something sharp. In 2012, a man stole a Jeep in Kingman, Arizona. Once noticed by police, he fled on foot across the railroad tracks, disappearing into the maze of blighted shelters that is Slaughterhouse Canyon. Five days later, he was arrested outside a Safeway grocery store, thanks to an anonymous tip. Slaughterhouse Canyon seems like a good place to hide when you're on the run. Your neighbors don't ask questions, and the police don't know where to look for you. Maybe those cries are someone struggling to sleep or children calling for a parent that hasn't come home. But maybe there's something else, something harder to explain. Would-be ghost hunters face some unique challenges as they enter Slaughterhouse Canyon. There's no structure to look for. Whatever shack Luana and her family erected for their homestead did not have the ability to persist through history the way her name has. But the lack of a historical dwelling doesn't mean the area is empty. 
If investigators want to make their way into the canyon, they have to pick through the mass of trash and abandoned structures at its mouth, any of which may be occupied by someone who does not want to be disturbed. Between May 24th and May 25th, 2006, Kingman police hauled 55 tons of trash, 9 tons of metal, and 15 vehicles from Slaughterhouse Canyon. The effort barely made a dent. The canyon is a near constant dumping site, and the Kingman police and city planners have been in a not-so-silent war with the occupants of Slaughterhouse Canyon over whether they should have a right to live there at all. The town's newspaper, the Kingman Daily Miner, has several reports of conflicts between the city and the canyon citizens, many of whom have faced eviction unless they brought their homes up to code, even though the city acknowledges that the majority of the trash comes from what is called wildcat dumping by people outside the small community. In some ways, it feels like history is repeating itself. The squatters and low-income residents of Slaughterhouse Canyon are their own kind of urban homesteaders, only they are isolated by callousness rather than geography. During that cleaning spree in 2006, the Kingman authorities bulldozed a recently condemned home where a family of seven children had been living. The home was without running water, sewer, or septic service, and the wiring was faulty and unsafe. It's hard to forget Luana when one thinks of these children, banding together to survive with next to nothing. Luana didn't believe hers could make it on their own, so far from help and home. But if there's anything the fate of Slaughterhouse Canyon proves, it's that frontiers and ghost towns are very complicated things, and that there are many reasons for spirits to be screaming. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legend series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all of the podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Haunted Places, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Haunted Places on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Haunted Places in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Lil D. Ritter and Jennifer Rache, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>